Welcome to the On The Way Podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, Sue Wilton and Peter Cat. Hello. hello. Hello there, Dom. Uh, and a special guest today, we have Mick Pope, a meteorologist, climate scientist, theologian, author, and interestingly, a term I hadn't come across before, eco-theologian, uh, joining the podcast. Thank you so much for your time, Mick. Thank you. Um, we, we might just start, yeah, I guess, with what that is. What is an eco-theologian? Um. An eco-theologian is someone who recognises that when we approach scripture, when the Christian tradition looks at scripture, it's often through a, a particular perspective. And typically being a white male, <laughs> you read it through a white male perspective, so you silence the voices. So it's almost analogous to feminist theology in a sense. But instead you're reading scripture through the lens of the, the more than human creation, both seeing the role that it plays as an actor, you know, not just a like a background scenery in a play but a genuine actor with a, who has a script and a role and um, intentions and desires and, and a future um, and then be able to turn that out into the world and look at the problems we see today and say well how can we correct our theology and how can we act faithfully as Christians in that arena it, the, I suppose the Christian response to climate change what the what people of faith should do about it how we should act is a, a big talking point that really is well, not touched on by many churches, perhaps because there's still the debate in some areas of Christianity about whether climate change is even happening or not. Um, and in other areas, perhaps there's just a helplessness, a, a what do we do about it? Just to frame this this conversation from the starting point, I know that most um, people who aren't intricately involved in climate science probably only get the various news sound bites we hear about where climate change is at in the world. Can you give us the scientific overview brief i suppose about um about where we are at at this stage we're recording in you know early mid 2019 where are we at in the world right now with climate change okay so the baseline for the key driver of climate change uh, which is carbon dioxide concentrations is the start of the industrial revolution where human beings started burning fossil fuels firstly coal and then later oil and natural gas and the Results of that are measured, um, think of it analogous to having an old-fashioned bar heater. Uh, the more carbon dioxide you add, the more bars you have to the heater and the warmer the room gets. So we're at currently about 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer than uh, pre-industrial levels. And that's warming that we haven't seen in millennia. Mm. So that's kind of the, the state of where we are now. Yep. And then looking into the future, looking at the trajectories of emissions, it, I haven't looked for a little while, but it's at least three degrees of warming if not more, four to five perhaps, if we go what's known as business as usual, which means we don't take any actions to cut our carbon emissions by switching to renewables, changing our diets and so on and so forth. I know that uh, in the new book, uh, I think it's An Uninhabitable Planet, Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace-Wells, he does speak about how we are on track for around about four degrees of warming by 2100 um, if no action is taken. And I think he says that the effects of that will cost the world roughly $600 trillion, which is about double the amount of wealth in the world. So it's pretty pretty catastrophic stuff that we are getting. Um, so I suppose the big question then is, you know, why why are we not seeing drastic action worldwide to stop this now? Oh. Still, why is it still a contentious talking point? Oh, well, we're we talking inside or outside the church. I mean, if you're looking at the world at large, I just read something recently that said, and I can't remember what over what length of time it was, but $200 million have been spent by fossil fuel companies in disinformation campaigns, $53 million alone by BP. 
We'll call him the quiet deceiver rather than the quiet <laughs> achiever, if you remember those ads. So there's a lot of vested interest uh, in the... Uh, so you've got the... Um, oh, what's it called? The Enterprise Institute. There's another word in that title in the United States who funded by fossil fuel companies and they produce adverts that cast doubt on the science. It's the same playbook that um, the tobacco industry went through when there was the link between smoking and cancer, the same playbook that was produced by the uh, CFC industry. So there's a huge inertia in vested interests and that revolving door, we see this worldwide between fossil fuel industry and government. And that has a huge impact upon the way in which we think because in an ideal world, the fourth estate, uh, which is the media, is presents both sides of the argument in a rational manner and you're, able to, you're informed and can make decisions and then act. That mud, water is very much muddied. We, that might be an interesting place to start talking about um I guess the because I did hear you speaking about the theology of sin that plays into this mm. as to how we can understand why the different drivers that can send humans in these directions because it does seem like um, I guess from a, an objective somewhat point of view without a personal stake in the game I don't have shares in a in BP or anything it does seem like uh, incomprehensible that somebody could put short term even radical financial profit over the long term uh, future viability of the planet so. When you look at that from, I guess, the perspective of, of maybe sin, what, what, what do you see? Well, there's a few things, I suppose. There's the, the one sense that um, sin is about being fundamentally selfish in curvitous say, um, inward looking um, at, at one level, uh, and just that, that fundamental self-interest. I mean, we all have natural drives towards self-preservation, but when that's projected upon issues like this, then it becomes very much distorted. I think also sometimes there's just, we, we tell ourselves stories. And so one of the reasons I think mining geologists might deny climate change other than they see the long-term geological history and can't really put human agency in the picture is they think, well, we've delivered such good. You think about the, the good, the value that burning fossil fuels has delivered to humanity. If you're, you have an accident in the middle of the night, you will go to an emergency um, department of a hospital and you can get surgery if you want and there's no risk of the lights going out and no risk of you getting an infection because there's an autoclave and the autoclave is run by electricity that's from the burning of fossil fuels. So on the one hand, uh, particularly Western society has ex experienced great goods out of the burning of fossil fuels. So to turn around all of a sudden and say the whole basis of Western society is destroying the planet. Um, it's, you know, you do a double take, you think, how can this possibly be the whole basis of my life? It's the same thing with colonialism, with uh, uh, white patriarchy, that all these things that if you're in the middle of it and you're really benefiting from it, all of a sudden to be told, all of this needs to change, well, there's huge, huge inertia. So there's, it's just that we've told ourselves these stories that are impenetrable to being told the opposite. Mm. Uh, I, I know that the uh, UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, in late 2018 released a, a landmark report basically saying the world's got, I think it's still 2030, to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, that if drastic, absolutely drastic action isn't taken by then, we're going to pass that, that 1.5 degrees of, of warming. Um, how late do you think we're going to leave this before? Is it going to take to the point where major... Western capital cities have sea levels starting to flood them before the world's actually going to take the drastic action needed. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, we've, we've seen enough already, um, and we, we see again the inertia, the fighting against the evidence. So, what was it? 
forgive me if the figures are wrong, 40,000 people dying in the 2003 European heatwave. We know that for things like Hurricane Katrina, global warming is, is adding more water vapour to the atmosphere and so enhancing the rainfall of that. And it's already raised sea levels significantly enough to, you know, for all the flooding in Louisiana, all those sorts of places. So we're experiencing it now. And in fact, we're seeing how we can't cope. And so it happened in the, in the wake of Katrina. So how much more evidence do you need? We've been worried about the basics of climate science and the potential for warming for 150 years when we first started burning coal. And yet the, the view was back then, the rate at which we were doing it a thousand years from now. So we keep pushing things into the future because it's easier to do that than to act now. But already we're seeing from 1.2 degrees Celsius of warming over the pre-industrial level that the chance of catastrophic heat waves has already doubled. So the statistics are there. Mm. Um, so sometimes I do wonder whether or not um, it will be yet another catastrophe that will tip people over the edge. What I'm seeing is the fear of what is in the future and a knowledge of what's happening in the present is already triggering people. I mean, I think the one of the greatest symbols or signs of hope is that the, the, the uh, school climate strikes that have happened globally. I mean, we haven't seen anything like that since whenever mm. on any issue. Yeah, it's great. It's a real sign of hope. Yeah, well, and I suppose that is a very important point to touch on because the overwhelming emotion when you hear the case we've outlined over the past 10 minutes of where the world's at is fear. I feel fearful and probably a bit overwhelmed um, because, you know, there's, there's so much that needs to be done. And I think when people feel fearful, fear, feel fearful and overwhelmed, they often just shut down rather than actually react positively. Um, what, so what is the alternative then, Peter, From that, that, that maybe our faith tradition can, can suggest to us when presented with a problem so seemingly overwhelming and um, so complex in terms of not just the action needed to be taken, but the people are still unconvinced there's action that needs to be taken. What's the different model that we can take? Well, well I think the faith um, can offer us a number of gifts. One, one is to deal with um, the stuff that Mick was talking about earlier on, about how we've got all this good stuff, and some of it we're going to have to lose. And we actually know how to do grief and grieving and loss work, so we actually... We actually need to acknowledge that. You know, we need to acknowledge the stuff that we're enjoying, that we're not going to be able to enjoy any more if the planet is to be sustainable and if we're to find a different way of living. And you actually have to, you know, as when someone dies or, or you have some form of loss, you actually have to go through that process, face the loss, and you discover the resurrection on the other side. And I think so part of our narrative is you embrace that sort of stuff, you acknowledge what you're going to miss, uh, you grieve it and you move out the other side. So you actually, we actually have an active process. The other thing we've got to offer, I think, is, is that wonderful combination of knowing how to manage despair and hope. So that form of despair that doesn't lead to being overwhelmed, uh, which, is, which is sort of despair balanced by hope, and hope that's balanced by despair because if we go too far down the hope track we we either say oh god will look after it or things will be okay or it'll be all right in the end and so i think the christian tradition because we know how to do you know the, the whole easter thing of despair of good friday the hope of easter and that they're actually part of a pair i think that's a, we've got the capacity to equip people to move into a process that means we a take it seriously 
do something about it, and we're driven by the idea that we actually can do it, that, that we actually have the potential to live a sustainable life. I think it's really nice that you put it in those terms, that what the church offers, because I think I'm really conscious in this day and age, particularly um, with sexual abuse in the church and that just the lack of moral high ground that the church has you know i don't think we can we can tell anyone how to live their lives at the moment myself and so but what we do have is some riches there riches that are you know as peter says about despair and hope about model about how to actually um live together um facing this and i think there's also that idea of you know finding out what the holy spirit is doing and joining in and I see great hope in like the school strikes and I see hope in things like community gardens where you go that, that there's people gathering together, you know, sometimes because they're gifted a pretty ordinary leftover bit of land, but they gather together and make something and work on it together, um, you know, and sure, that's not going to turn this thing around. But if we can come as church and join in with some of these movements and bring some of the depth of spirituality to that, that helps us be our best human selves. Um, I think that's a real gift. A lot of people uh, have a faith life um, that, that is based in fear, uh, you know, fear of, of a God who might be against. And Mick, I did hear you uh, when I was doing some research as well speak about um, how fear isn't sustaining in a faith life, um, but fear also isn't really sustaining in the fight against climate change, that, that it, it will just paralyse you in a sense. Um, how do you manage your fear? Because I imagine as someone who sees the figures and understands the science, there has to be, you know, real fear involved in this as well, sometimes when you look at it. I have a number of books. You referred to a book just earlier that's just come out that I haven't read yet that I'm still plucking up the courage to read. I do, <laughs> I do find books a little bit easier to read than watching documentaries. Um, I'm really looking forward to David Attenborough's new documentary on climate change, though, because I can put them down. Um, it has kept me awake at night. Uh, it, it does give me pause for grief. I have a 16-year-old and I think about the world in which he's going to grow up in. And he's already been born into a climate different to the one in which I, I grew up in to begin with. Um, sometimes I hope I'm not resorting to a, a kind of blind faith that it will work out, that we will pull out all the stops in time. Um, but there is that kind of degree of realism that our world will be changed regardless of what we do now. Uh, we will lose a bunch of things, not just letting go of the good things, I hope, Peter, to, to make some sacrifice. And I actually want to make a comment in a second on theology on that. But also the good things that we shouldn't be giving up, like the Great Barrier Reef, um, because Psalm 104, which is one of my favourite passages, favourite psalms, we're losing a voice that gives praise to, to, to God, evidence of, of uh, divine care for things other than the human being. Uh, so, you know, sometimes I'm basically sticking my head in the, si the sand. Other times I'm, uh, I can remember giving a, a Bible devotional at Tia in Melbourne and, uh, and then said, oh, does anyone want to pray now? And they said, oh, you better do it because we're all so flabbergasted. So, you know, you can, <laughs> you can spout all these facts. And I've got a chapter in my most recent book on the Anthropocene, which is the kind of the sum total of what human beings are doing to the planet and compare it to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it's all pretty damn depressing. So sometimes you've got to take a step back, and I think um, sometimes that's walking my dog. <laughs> as ridiculous as this sounds, and you'll hear the magpies and see the gum trees in my suburb, and take time to enjoy the things that we still have, while thinking, hmm, in some parts of Australia, birds are dropping out of the sky, and they're still going to have these things, but still trying to enjoy them. But just, I, I wanted to jump back to theology for a minute, and I think it, 
if we could tap into this, it would now so many problems that the church has, sexual abuse and whatever else. And it, it is Easter. It's that word kenosis, that self-emptying nature of Christ, uh, laying everything aside to be a servant. And that's where the church has really fallen down. Because it's, and this is a metaphor for what humanity's done as a whole, is it so wrapped up in itself, forgotten what it's for, which is to serve the world. And when you start to look at the, the creation texts and so on, I think that humanity as a whole has forgotten itself, that it, it's elevated itself to rule over creation rather than to rule with it and, and indeed to serve it, you know, that tend and care that Genesis 2 talks about. Hmm. Well, that's a fascinating point, I suppose, because the the response of many um, Christians might be that this evacuation theology, that, that, you know, we don't have to worry about things getting really bad or, or sea levels rising because worst comes to worst. If there is an apocalypse, we'll just be, you know, beamed up into the sky, basically. Um, so we almost like there's a removal of any obligation to care for the world around us as, as part of this world. Um, how do you deal with people who view it that way? Or what's your response, perhaps, to people okay. who view it that way? So coming from the evangelical tradition, it's always to go back to Scripture and open up Scripture and say, this is what it says and this is what it doesn't say. Um, Barbara Rossing, uh, American theologian, wrote a really good book whose title... I've completely forgotten, uh, but it looks at the rapture. Uh, and, and she shows, for example, that the rapture, this, it, it's not in the Bible whatsoever. It's hinted at in a passage in 1 Thessalonians, but it's not really. And it's certainly not in Revelation. And in fact, that great vision at the end of the book of Revelation with the, the heavenly city comes down to earth, it's in fact a rapture in reverse. Um, the Lord's Prayer, which you know I've prayed weekly for years in, in Anglican church services, like you, you, I was going to say, thy. I haven't said that in years. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the the veil is broken down between heaven and earth, and in, in a sense, earth becomes heaven because that's where God will dwell eternally. You know, and, and as he, as he dwelt in Christ. So, or Romans eight, which is my favourite go-to, which talks about the whole creation groaning. I was talking uh, with Jared McKenna, an American uh, Canadian theologian last night in a podcast about this that our groaning and creation's groaning are so tied up together that our futures are entwined and not separated that's um i don't know which the early church fathers we blame for the separation but it's very much greek thought it's certainly not hebraic thought at all i think there's that that's false separation has come in just between human beings too that we there is once we get the theology right of recognizing that whatever one person is suffering we are all suffering, you know, but that just extends to creation as well. And it, it's so the fault is there across our theology, not just in the way we mm. treat the earth, but the way we treat one another mm. too. I love um, John Donne's poem, uh, No Man is an Island. And you know, don't ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee, because every every person that's lost is a loss to you. So in and. The Franciscan theology invites us to uh, push that out to all the other creatures too. So every every creature we lose out of the created order actually diminishes us, mm. and where our humanity is therefore being diminished as as we diminish the planet, we diminish ourselves, uh, and we stop ourselves from being the best that we could be. There's a belief, I think, in some people, uh, some Christians, that perhaps numbs their fear about things like this but suggests that it can't get that bad because god wouldn't let it get that bad mm. god will fix it god's got it under control um it, you know and, and they'll defend this they'll talk about it as a trust in god i trust that god would not let things go as bad as some scientists are saying um what, what do you think of that mick well 
I firmly believe in the resurrection from the dead, but I don't see any promise that things can't get really bad before it happens. Uh, and, and the nature of the reset, whatever that might look like, is kind of completely opaque to me. So it, it will always come back to me that uh, even if you were, were so wooden and some Christians are that human beings have sinned and God's cursed the earth and this is what we deserve and this is how it's going to unfold, I can point them back to things like Isaiah where God says, yes, the Assyrians punished Israel and did exactly what I wanted Assyria to do, but they're still going to get it because they enjoyed it way too much. So it's, it's even if this is all kind of foreordained, how can you take joy in this? How, how can you actually think that this, what's happening now is, is a good and a positive thing? Yes, like human suffering it, through the veil of tears, there may be something out the other side, as you know, Romans 8 says, that God has subjected creation to frustration in hope, so that there's, it, in a sense it's part of the process, but that doesn't glorify or gratify um, that the evil that we see itself is good. It's just what Paul says is that all things come together for good of those who love God. So it's we can't call good, uh, sorry, we can't call evil good, even if good's going to come out of the end of it. So if billions of people die as a result of climate change and the, the world comes to a screaming end, um, yes, God will return and, and sort stuff out. But the pain along the way, the suffering along the way, do you think God rejoices in any of that? Not, not the God I worship and understand. I think two people don't have a picture of, of some of the sort of effects of climate change. They're thinking it's getting warmer, you know, maybe we'll have to look at a bit of population decline in the future. Um, and you mentioned the four horsemen of the apocalypse before. I don't know which four horsemen you've heard, but I've heard of the first one described as famine, that actually the first one coming through is there's not going to be enough to eat. And so people that think in those terms of God will sort it all out, you know, uh, might also be feeling terribly sad when they see famines on the earth now and don't recognise the, the, the kind of catastrophic famine that that first of the horsemen is likely to bring. Uh, is it, I can't remember now if it's maize or soy, but in a four degree Celsius world, globally, the yield of those crops declines by 50% or more. I once gave a talk at a church and there was someone from RMIT University in the audience and he was doing some research on wheat. And he said, if you get two days at 35 degrees Celsius or above during the flowering season of wheat, you reduce its yield by 50%. Hmm. We're talking about fundamental staples mm -hmm. uh, and these things will go in dramatic decline yeah. or the number of people in wa under water stress. I think it's doubles or triples in a four degree Celsius mm. world. So you've got people who don't have enough water to drink to irrigate their crops and we're already seeing the impacts of that mm. now. I think one of the I think one of the um, reasons some people discount climate change is because of the scale of temperature rise. Now, if you tell someone that the temperature is going to go up by a couple of degrees, they think, "Oh, well, yesterday was twenty six. Today, what's if it's twenty eight tomorrow? Yeah, what does it matter?" Um, so I think we need also help people um, understand the. Um, the significance of that change across the, the planet. So the difference between today and the Ice Age is four degrees. So the, the planet was four degrees cooler when we had the Ice Age. So you get that four degrees gives you that sort of shift in the global climate. Mm. So when we're talking about adding another four degrees, we're talking about shifting from the climate change to the industrial revolution and then imagine that shift again so four degrees was enough to warm us from the ice age yeah to yeah yeah, yeah to get us across the globe and <laughs> yep. you know 
Um, so it, I think part of it is one of scale, and um, I think one of the um, challenges is to get people to appreciate that these small numbers actually have significant, huge consequences. And it's that sort of stuff that Mick's just saying. You know, a couple of a couple of days of a temperature of of this or that causes that crop to halve or fail. Rice faces the same sort of issues. So they're looking at you know, a little bit of warming in the tropics and the rice crop will uh, undergo catastrophic failure as well. When we come back to the uh, European heat wave of 2003, and if that's a, like a one in century, 100 year event, um, end of century in a four degree Celsius world, that becomes a one in two year event. The kind of event that can kill tens of thousands of people if you don't have infrastructure in place. And if that's happening regularly, your infrastructure starts to decline. So it's, you know, you, we have to start thinking about um, the problem with global average temperature is it's one number to measure what happens in the globe. Uh, end of century, that's 10, 12, 14 degrees of warming over the Arctic because all the ice melts. Um, uh, and so that's not absorbing the heat, it's not reflecting the sunlight. Uh, and then you're, it's like thinking about, uh, the analogy would be you start with a, a pair of dice and you roll two numbers and the probabilities are equal and then all of a sudden you're shifting to where you're rolling double sixes all the time. So we're loading the dice in the climate towards these extreme events. That, that's kind of like the, what they call the new normal or a shifting normal that continues to get worse and worse. And, and is that what, because the thing that I often come across is people say, but we've had this all before, you know, they point to a, a drought back a couple of hundred years ago or a, or a cold snap or, you know, and say, and, and all the catastrophes and say, but people, this is always what it's been, you know, and is that because of it's a distinction between um, weather, normal weather fluctuations and climate change, or how would you, you know, counter that argument, I guess? Yeah, it's... It, it, the atmosphere is the atmosphere, the ocean is the ocean. You're not creating new phenomena. You're just changing the frequency of occurrence and or the severity of them. So I said earlier that in a warmer climate, it's been suggested, in fact, we're probably seeing it now, that you will get fewer tropical cyclones, but they will produce more rainfall uh, and they can produce more flooding because of the enhanced water vapour in the atmosphere and the rise of sea levels. So it, the other problem I was reading about just recently too is that this creeping baseline that... You, you've got a fairly short-term memory uh, and you just get used to things and then things change a little bit more and you get used to more things. And we do that in nature, for example, when you think about how the world's fisheries have been exhausted. But a couple of hundred years ago, you throw a net in and it would come, you know, literally the biblical full of fish sort of thing. So the, the sheer abundance of things we don't see anymore. Uh, the thing that gets me, and this is a slightly different thing, but it's kind of related, is the passenger pigeon in the United States of America. And the sky would be covered for three whole days. I remember reading an account, I forget who wrote it, but the, the, uh, the droppings were falling like flakes of snow. And there's this deafening sound of wings. So uh, we've evacuated the earth of such sheer abundance. And we forget that once upon a time there was that sheer abundance of gods uh, other than human creatures. And it's the same with the climate. That It's like, oh, it's only a little bit warmer than it used to be. Oh, I kind of used to this. you just got very short-term memory. That's why we have scientists who take <laughs> direct observations and drill ice cores and sediment rings and all these sorts of things, uh, sediment cores, tree rings, to give us the biggest possible picture so that we can get our fi tiny, finite minds around you know, four and a half billion years of Earth history and then look at what humans have done. Um, there's a period in history called the paleo, uh, paleo, oh, the Eocene thermal maximum, 
I can't remember. It's a, uh, a period in history where you got six degrees of warming in 20,000 years. So that, and geologically, that's really, really rapid. And now we're talking about uh, four degrees at least by end of century. So you know, like 150 years or something like that. Mm. That puts things into perspective. You look at the ice cores and you see how nice and flat the concentrations of greenhouse gases is and it goes like that. If you've ever seen um, An Inconvenient Truth, I think Al Gore does that really, really well, doesn't he? Gets on the, the crane or whatever it is and goes up and up and up and up and just shows how out of whack that is. So we need the long-term perspective that climate scientists give us. Hmm. I suppose a, a pivotal starting point then is to accept the human responsibility, the agency we have, that, it, that this one is up to us. We, we built this situation and we have to, we have to respond to it. Um, and to understand ourselves theologically as being made in the image of God and therefore having amazing capacity, therefore amazing responsibility. So mm. your human agency, from a theological point of view, um, is, is the richest thing. We, we actually see ourselves as, as having the free will and the capacity to make decisions that much of the rest of the creation doesn't seem to have. And we talk about you know, the birds praising God by doing what they singing the song that they know it's their way of praise whereas we have this capacity to align ourselves with the creation and with the creator or to go against it so you know our theology um, gives us incredible responsibility which is why i always get really upset by that idea of oh well, it's up to god and god will handle it and and we can pretend we're passengers in this predetermined a scheme of things when in fact we've been put here to tend the garden if you like so a lot of people who and this should just be something we i guess we briefly touch on who still just deny it's happening they still just deny climate change outright they think it's either some conspiracy they think there's new energy companies standing to profit billions of dollars um these sort of of uh, suggestions now peter and mick obviously you're both trained scientists um when people who aren't scientifically trained or scientifically literate hold these positions, is there anything you can do or do you just have to, I guess, ignore the shouts of the uneducated on this one? Well, it's more that um, there's a set percentage of people who believe conspiracy theories. So you know, we, have to, we have to deal with the fact that there are going to be anti-vaxxers even while measles is breaking out in the country. Uh, there are... You know, there are plenty of flat earthers left. Um, the thing is, it's, it's about understanding that the majority of, the, of people actually want to know what reality is and how to respond to it. And they're the people we have to focus on. Mm. It's like when we were doing refugee advocacy a few years ago, we discovered that 25% of the Australian population were riveted on racists. And that 25% you just had to leave alone because if you spend your time arguing with them, you're not doing the best by the refugees because the people who have the, have the power really are the 50% in the middle who are called the persuadables. And that's where we've got to put our effort. It's like I used to enjoy arguing with uh, creationists you know, as an evolutionist. I used to love um, having jousts with creationists until I realized that that was holding me back because I wasn't exploring what it 
meant to be in a world that was evolving and allowing my spirituality to soar mm. uh, in response to that because I was too busy trying to have that fundamental argument all the time. And same with dealing with climate change. We need to accept that there are people who will never accept that it's real and just leave them be and the rest of us have to get on with the project. I went to the student climate strike and uh, was blown away and I was on a real high and then I came back to my desk at work and heard about Christchurch. So I came down a peg and then I went home and a friend of mine who writes for Eternity News, which is a Christian website in Sydney, said, can you please go onto the Facebook page? And I went on and the comments were so demoralising. What I found after 45 minutes, I had a stress headache and then I, I put a post on a, a Australian Christian environmental group on Facebook, a call, can you please help? And the next morning I've got on and I've seen, oh, there's all these likes of things that I've, I've said in response to the sceptics. And so I think that in the appropriate fora, it's, it's good to present the standard arguments against the nonsense and, and point out that that's conspiracy theory or you don't understand the science, that's nonsense. Here's, you know, because there are those who are listening in who want you to respond, mm. who, who want to be reminded that they're not alone, that they're not insane, that it's not incompatible with their faith, and that there is someone out there who can silence the voices. I mean, I've long since given up trying to shift people, and I had one fellow who used to email me regularly, and one day I said, look, you, you've just shared with me an article by Lord Monckton, <laughs> for goodness sake. If you're constantly going to turn to this fellow and ignore what I'm telling you to go to the peer-reviewed scientific literature we're done don't get in touch with me anymore but in a public forum on, on social media yeah I'm more inclined to do it because I know that that will be encouragement to other people mm. but you're not going to shift the skeptics it's that's not for them yeah it's not for them that's right um, Mick I just want to touch on what I think was the theme of one of your books which is the um, use of the parable of the good Samaritan as something of a framework for approaching a Christian response to climate change. You've even described it as a parable of climate justice. Can you just speak on that a bit? Sure. I mean, you think about what's in the forefront of the passage is that someone has been denied their natural justice. They've been physically assaulted. They've been left for dead. And uh, because they're the other, the religious elite have ignored them for whatever reason. And, and the standard response and the standard understanding is, well, this man looks like he's dead. We don't want to become richly unclean. And now I know conservatives uh, who will say the job of the church is to preach the gospel, um, which is to pre preach a particular theology about the cross for them often, and not to get involved in these debates. And I'm saying, well, there are people who are suffering right now from climate change, and so this concept of restorative justice, of getting our hands dirty and spending time and money and energy into doing this is, is a Christian call because this summarizes the Christian faith. So that's the front story. But the back story, of course, is to ask where do bandits come from in the first place? And that's to put the whole story in a first century context of people were taxed into oblivion by the Roman Empire. And so you either became a day worker, which you read in lots of Jesus parables, or you become a Robin Hood, a bandit, and that's who they were. And so that then you see the religious figures as not going to help this guy in case I get attacked because not only were people suffering under the Roman tax, but they were suffering under the temple tax as well. And so that presents the picture of the system needs to change. One of the problems with the modern climate change debate is it comes down to what can I do as an individual, as a consumer? And don't get me wrong, there are things that we should do. I have a friend who's always in my ear about becoming vegan, and we need to look to our diets. 
But as I was saying earlier, it's the fossil fuel giants and the corrupt relationship they have with politicians that needs to change because a, a, a big percentage of our carbon emissions comes from the generation of electricity and the pushing in our faces all the time of the consumerist culture. So you tackle that at both ends. So yeah, I think it's a really nice tight parable, both in the kind of restorative justice type space, but also in the tearing down, defying the system that caused the inequalities in the first place. That's a great, great reading of it. You, you, yeah, you're right. That the point is that when it comes to those who are victims of climate change, whether it's dis people displaced in India and placed at greater risk of being enslaved, the people of the Carteret Islands facing having to move to mainland Papua New Guinea, or Torres Strait Islander peoples whose lives are set to be affected by more heat waves, rising seas and more floods, we are the bandits. Those in the West have made a larger contribution to climate change than most of the world's peoples. And this touches on a very key theme here, which is um, the West, I guess the people who live uh, in our culture, we have created climate change, um, and, but it's not going to be us who suffer the most initially. Um, and and that's, quite a, that's quite a difficult thing because if you're talking about self-interest, unless we start suffering, a lot of people aren't going to act. So do you, does this parable to you then a call to use this as, as uh, Jesus basically informing us, this is where you need to act. This is your job. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, um, we, we've benefited so much and other people have suffered. And, and it's again, it comes back to colonialism and the beginnings of... of um, Oh, what's the word? Capitalism. And it's always been off the backs of the suffering of others, whether it be slaves or, or women or the planet. And it's easy for Australians to say, oh, our emissions are so blindingly small, but we're the second highest of the highest per capita emitters of carbon dioxide. Mm. So when you have people in the Pacific begging us to take moral leadership in the region and lead the way... And we're saying, oh, well, our emissions aren't very large. And, and what's more, we're going to more than double our responsibility by ripping coal out of the, the Carmichael uh, coal mine and ship it over to India, which is also the poor, poorest quality coal you can get your hands on, so you're going to get more deaths over there due to the, the sulphur, etc. Is it's we're called to um, to act because the burden and responsibility is on us. And that makes me think, too, uh, of the book of Revelation, which is essentially a two-pronged approach. It's either you are suffering under empire, uh, God is renewing the world now, so get on with the business of being part of that, or you are complicit in empire, you better watch out. So countries like Australia, we're fundamentally involved and implicit in this, this carbon colonialism, and we need to get our hands out of it real quick. I was just going to draw on a much less sacred text um, and th in, in Game of Thrones um, <laughs> um, there's that model of the, that, that theme that, that Martin's put in there of the White Walkers and um, meanwhile you know the White Walkers are coming and, and this cha massive change is coming and yet meanwhile they're off playing the Game of Thrones and I think so many in so many different ways we're off, off playing those games with power with money with its capitalism whether in the church has its own Games of Thrones and versions of that you know and we're all so distracted playing these games and, and thinking sometimes that our technology or our incredible creativity will somehow f save us all um, whilst we continue in that same consumerist model and, and um, not seeing what's coming. Just to um, sort of bring it back, full loop back to the um, parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus told that parable because someone had asked him the question, who is my neighbour? 
and the intention was to broaden that definition of neighbour to the enemy, um, I think we in our time are being challenged to realise that neighbour is everything else. And so the, the definition of neighbour has been increasing. Ever since Jesus told that story, uh, every generation has been challenged to see the definition of neighbour as being extended another notch. And for us, it is the Great Barrier Reef. One of the things I did miss out on that uh, a friend of mine who's into the new materialism uh, pointed out was the role of the donkey in the parable. And that just kind of goes by. It's, it's the, uh, the Samaritan's donkey. And I, kind of, I left it at that and didn't even think about the fact that there's, there's a partnership with the modern human creation that we need to engage in, which is exactly your point, yeah. uh, to include everything. And our neighbour is everything and everyone in time and space. Well, Mick, I'm aware we have to let you go very shortly off to a speaking engagement. I just want to, I suppose, touch on the the what from here um, point of this, because I imagine a lot of people who listen to this podcast are in various faith communities, perhaps around the country or around the globe, um, and might be wondering, well, aside perhaps from personally trying to be greener or, or have cleaner energy in my household, what can we do? What can we actually do about this... this um, oncoming catastrophe obviously we can vote we can protest but what would you say the church should do should we be working this into our, our weekly worship routines in some capacity as something to discuss should we be uh, examining i guess what what we can do in the area to help what do you think the the, the call to us is now for action wow that's a, that's quite a big question to ask right at the end of a podcast <laughs> um well, there's there's any number of directions. I, I I do think that the I mean obviously the church needs to avoid being partisan in its politics, but we can't be apolitical. The gospel's not apolitical. The the history of the the the, the Hebrews of the nation of Israel is not apolitical. So we need to get more political. And I think the church identifying radically with the creation through who it votes for, or you know examine what each party's saying, uh, protesting, getting alongside the kids rather than the Christians I read on the Turning In News uh, Facebook page who would just think that so wrapped up in Romans 13 and you know civil dis- disobedience is a sin, blah, 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 blah. I mean, if, if the church throughout history hadn't got involved in civil disobedience, nothing would have happened, right? Um, it starts in the Australian context with um, the First Peoples, I think, and fundamentally acknowledging what, whose land we're on and who has suffered along with the land on which we're on. Um, and learning about the place in which we're in so that we need to learn to fundamentally identify and care for where we live and see it, try and learn to see it through Indigenous eyes. But become indigenized is a phrase I learned last night from a, a Cree scholar mm. from, from Canada. So becoming embedded in the place that you're in and, and really owning it and being owned by it um, and, th- and then it, it, all the other things are, are entirely valuable. It, it, that saying that we need to change the system isn't a post that, that I need to start with myself. I just don't end there. So examining your diet. But uh, to get back to your other point about the church, I think it would be fantastic if we actually, um, if we could tear down the walls of church buildings and, and see outside and bring the world into the church uh, having services outside, uh, examining our liturgy, lamenting what we've done to the creation. I've got a friend, Byron Smith, who you must interview sometime, lives in Sydney, did his whole PhD on grieving and climate change and so on, and, and, and bringing that into our liturgy. Um, because 
what, what did the Psalms do? It's a fundamental part of Israelite liturgy is that a fundamental identification with land. One of the problems, of course, is, and here's my other thing I, I encourage people to do, is grow your own food. Um, Ellen Davis is a, a practical theologian. She says fundamental to the image of God is, is agriculture. It's feeding ourselves. Um, and so church, getting back to what Sue said earlier about community gardens, church gardens, that there's just so much benefit that can come from those in terms of a porous boundary between ourselves and the community. I've heard of uh, church gardens being used to provide food for HIV-positive people, for people displaced from their, um, their communities overseas, for refugees, asylum seekers, being able to grow their traditional foods, all these sorts of things, but tying us to the soil once more and the seasons, and it's only in being tied to the seasons do you realise how much they're being disrupted. Mm. So grounding ourselves as being humans from the humus. That's brilliant. Um, maybe to close with a, another quote of yours from um, one of your writings, you say, pray now, speak up now, write emails now, march now, change to clean power now, do all you can now. To love God is to love our neighbour. To love our neighbour is to want justice for them. And to do justice is to address climate change. And I think the use of the word now there repeatedly um, has a lot of emphasis to it. It's time to start now. Uh, thank you so much, Mick. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. And we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.